Hello, everyone. Welcome to Health 180 with Carrie and Fenn and Rogers TV on podcasts. My name is Carrie and Fenn. My family and I are finishing our isolation period after we all had the flu, cold, or COVID symptoms. I tested positive for COVID-19 and was admitted to the hospital for four days. My family members were still waiting for their test results. I left my boys laying in bed suffering with symptoms so that I can go to the ER for care. My boys and I share the same symptoms, although our situations were different. You are never prepared to hear the words that I did that you have COVID-19. I have faced many challenges in the last few years, ranging from inhumane systemic anti-Black racism in a family matter, a three-vehicular accident, and now facing the impact of COVID. I am double vaccinated, but the virus was transmitted to me and... Um, I'm extremely cautious when it comes to uh, taking um, precautions. Um, that being said, um, let's go get to our show today. Um, I'm joined today by Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, advocate for long-term care. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Um, tell us about yourself. Oh, geez, <laughs> I always get caught off guard with that question. <laughs> um, uh, me, I am a professor at Ontario Tech University, so out in Durham, um, and uh, I uh, have experience, lived experience with long-term care. I did some long-term care research in my um, doctoral studies, and and when COVID hit, uh, you know, in conjunction with my own long-term care experiences, it, it really made me want to step, well, I didn't even feel like it was a choice, felt like I had to step up and, and point out things that I was seeing that were just wrong. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, trying to propose solutions for how to move forward and just keep fighting, you know, the whole time to fix <laughs> many of the broken parts of this larger long-term care sector and particularly help, you know, our, our people in charge to put more humane and ethically responsible practices in place for uh, really caring for these residents. Yeah. You know, I could only imagine with those family members um, and patients um, who have been impacted by COVID-19, the long-term care uh, facility, it's, it's not easy knowing that, you know, you can leave your loved ones um, behind, you know. Advocacy is key in increased awareness and holding people accountable for the most vulnerable who might not have the platform like you do to have their voices heard. Why are you so passionate about long-term care advocacy? I, I mean, I've always been someone that's had a, a very soft spot for, for older adults and seniors. Mm. I'm very, very close. I was always very close with my grandparents, um, very close. Um, and um, I just don't like when any vulnerable population is being um, you know, exploited and, and frankly, just mistreated because there's been mm. a lot of mistreatment. and. Um, and I'll admit, I mean, you know, when you said people using their platform, I didn't have a platform before COVID-19. I mean, I think I had like 300 followers on Twitter. I mainly used it for recruitment for research. Um, I mean, I've always been an advocate. I've always been someone that has that stood up for things I've believed. Um, but, but really, this whole Twitter platform I have grew because of COVID-19 and families reaching out to me and wanting to share their stories and me trying to help them get their stories out there to the public. And that's, that's really how it grew and, and, and why I have a platform, unfortunately, because there was a need for it, which, you know, you wish there wasn't 
but unfortunately, you know, the need is still there. And, and it's been two years of me every day <laughs> doing this. Yeah. We saw that many long-term care homes were impacted by COVID. Um, lots of lives were lost as a result. Um, what's your thoughts on the lives lost in long-term care during this pandemic? I mean, I think a lot of it was largely preventable. I think what this pandemic has really shown us is the the, the glaring need to remove profits from long-term care, given the very clear findings. Um, if you want the most glaring measure of failure, you can look at COVID-19 deaths, right? And we know that, for example, the for-profit beds from the most recent estimates we have provided by the Toronto Star, you know, the, the, the for-profit long-term care homes had over seven deaths per 100 registered beds, and then it went down to just 3.8 for the non-for-profits, and then 1.5 for the municipal homes. So there's, a, a, you know, almost five times more deaths um, the for-profit homes had than the municipal homes, and it really shows us the superiority of, of the municipal model and, and the most public form of long-term care in protecting not only the staff, but the residents as well, because it does have a protective feature for, for both the workers and the residents. In the midst of the pandemic, what were the primary things needed to protect our seniors that you think was missing? Give us a, a few. Uh, I mean, one of the most glaring mistakes was locking family members out for, for really the, the first eight to nine months. Um, and, and that was really why my advocacy started because you know, I knew from firsthand experience how important family involvement was in long-term care. And there's, there's a, many, many um, studies and, and significant literature in, in the peer-reviewed academic world that, that discusses the very protective factor of, long, of family involvement in long-term care from whistleblowing, from helping to provide hands-on direct care because we know there's chronic understaffing in this sector at large, um, which varies of course between the homes and, and profit slash ownership status plays a, a large part of that. Um, so I knew how important family involvement was and, and probably the most upsetting part, what really made me, what triggered me to start talking and, and advocating was when family were locked out and they were, you know, they kept being locked out. I think in the first, you know, first few weeks, we were all patient because we were all scared. We didn't know much about COVID. We were all learning, but then, you know, weeks turned to months and we're just like, this is unacceptable. You can't lock up these residents. They were being confined. And we had research that was coming out showing that, you know, the dangers of confinement were worse than the dangers of COVID. Seniors and these residents were dying from things like hypovolemic shock, from dehydration, from untreated uh, you know, sores that turn septic, um, just neglect. And, and that was what was causing many of these seniors to die over and above COVID-19. So really getting family back in there was my priority for the first easily six to seven months. And I think one of the proudest moments was, was getting that essential caregiver policy for for long-term care, because that's really the only congregate care setting that has a policy like ours. So knowing that at any time two essential caregivers are allowed in was something that we fought for. And, and I still hear, unfortunately, other sectors like group homes, other congregate care settings for persons with disabilities that, that still don't have these rights and are still fighting to get family in. And, and that's upsetting. Um, but you know, I, I take some solace knowing that we, we were able to get that for long-term care. And then I think the most of the other thing I was probably most proud of was was really fighting, um, you know, to get the vaccine mandate because mm -hmm. I knew, you know, that that without it, nothing was ever going to appreciably change. So when we got that, you know, it made a huge difference to stopping, um, you know, to lowering the outbreaks and to really stopping the mass casualties that we were seeing. So 
I mean, I, you know, when I look back and I think of two things that were really important, those are, those are two of them. But again, we're still struggling right now with things that aren't in place that we know could help, um, mm -hmm. you know, dealing with the staffing shortages, which remain that were never properly rectified, dealing with the terrible working conditions of these homes and the exploitation of the largely, largely racialized female workers that work in this sector. Um, dealing with the lack of proper PPE mandated for these workers at all times, um, not prioritizing the, the boosters for the workers and the staff, um, because we had prioritization for the residents, but we didn't for the staff, which made no sense because you know you are at a higher risk of contracting COVID without the booster, so we should have. This was a glaring failure to you know, while you were providing those boosters to the residents, you should have also been providing them to the staff since you were there. So there, there's still consistent problems that we're fighting for every day. Um, and we're getting small wins here and there, but you have to, you have to fight for them. What's your thoughts on the partnership with uh, hospitals and primary care established earlier in the pandemic? Yeah. Did you find it helpful? Of course it was. We needed, and this was, you know, unfortunately there were many homes, 20 plus when I stopped counting, by the way, the majority of them were deployed to for-profit homes um, who had the, the most disastrous outbreaks. Um, we needed them to be able to step in and provide that expertise and that, and that added staffing. And we needed the military as well. Unfortunately, we were turned down that option. We were provided the assistance, uh, the request from the prime minister, but Premier Ford turned it down in the second wave, even though we were losing seniors by the hour. That's another you know, thing that really upset a lot of us, um, but we needed that help and we welcomed it. But however, we didn't have the level of community transmission in previous waves that we have now. So the hospitals can't help the way they did before. They're struggling right now, everyone's struggling. So we're at a situation where unfortunately it feels at this point, I don't know how much more we can do to, to protect this sector when the things that I was, I was calling for primarily over the last month to the minister were not they didn't listen, right? And, and now, unfortunately, the tsunami's here, and we just we have to sit here and watch helplessly for the most part, which is really upsetting because you know the the window to act has passed, and now we wait. What do you mean when you say that you want proper hiring blitz? Tell us yeah. about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, in Quebec, after the first wave, they smartened up. They realized that they lost thousands of workers, as we, as did we here in Ontario as well. Workers mm -hmm. left for a variety of reasons. Um, workers were always leaving in long-term care. Long-term care has always had a revolving door of workers because it, it's exploited heavily. We have workers that are not trained properly, not paid properly, not provided proper working conditions where, you know, one worker has to care for you know, sometimes 20, 30, 40 residents, you would never see that in a hospital. You have a one to five ratio at best in hospitals. I mean, why do we let this happen in long-term care? There just hasn't been enough noise and, and, and enough focus on it. And most people just don't realize that this is happening. Um, so workers left, either they got sick, um, some died, uh, you know, some just said, forget it. We're gonna leave, go work for, you know, places that offer us better pay and better working conditions, mainly hospitals and, and other forms of, you know, um, healthcare settings that are better protected and treat their workers better. And we never dealt with this. We didn't, um, like Quebec, at least they had a proper um, recruitment drive after the first wave and they hired 10,000 workers before the deadly second wave to make sure that they had staff replacement to deal with who they, they lost. And they provided, you know, 50,000 starting salary for their equivalent of PSWs and they provided free training. So th this is what we needed to do. And we were begging this government to replicate that model and they didn't. So then we were hit far harder than Quebec was in the second wave, decidedly so, because of the lack of more proactive change to staff up 
ahead of what we all knew was going to be a, a second wave, a more deadly second wave with the starting of the, the back to school semester. Um, and now here we are with this, you know, next deadly stage of, of Omicron where we're thankfully because of the mandate and I take solace in this that we had, you know, the residents having and the residents and the staff in particular having um, two doses. So we're not seeing the hospitalization uh, and the more severe outcomes for many. However, as you know, well, two doses does not protect you from contracting COVID. Um, so we are now having mass staffing shortages. I mean, I just checked the updated figures that were just updated like a half an hour ago and I, and I posted those to Twitter and we have, you know, over 2,600 sick staff right now at home isolating. Who is, who is filling in for those workers? And this is something that I started warning this minister of last month, December 7th, I started, you know, ringing the alarm saying, the outbreaks are starting to increase. It was seven at that point, but I knew it had jumped significantly from the week before. And I, I, and I was listening to like everyone else paying attention to what was happening in other countries and, and warning, this is coming here. You need to act now while we have the opportunity. And unfortunately they didn't uh, until it was too late. We had enhanced measures, quote unquote, enhanced measures uh, come out December 28th after the holiday where we knew was super spreader events. They always are. Um, and, and it did nothing to protect it. All it did was um, <laughs> they cut, they clamped down the facilities again. So they locked. So we're going to we're going to continue this conversation on the next side. This is Health 180 with Karen Fennin Rogers TV on podcast. We're exploring long term care with Dr. Vivian. My name is Karen Fennin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Health 180 with Carrie and Fenn and Rogers TV and podcast. My name is Carrie and Fenn. We are exploring long-term care advocacy with Dr. Vivian. Wow, you have a lot of important information to share with the public. And it's so important when you hear voices like yourself speak up. We tend to be in a male's um, environment, right? I'm curious to hear your thought and what has it been like being a female advocate and speaking up? Great question. To... <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever asked me that. It's a great question. Yeah. Um, yeah. As you know, speaking up as a woman is tough and, and this is a man's world, especially in, in terms of, you know, I mean, we did have a former uh, minister who was a, a woman, but you know, yes. most of the ministers that, that, that I've dealt with have been men. So um, it's, it's, um, it's been a lot. I mean, women get, you know, I never, it's never comfortable for me to put myself out there publicly. I've never done televised media before the pandemic. I've done over, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm at the 300 mark now for interviews just during COVID um, about long-term care. And, you know, putting yourself out there like that really is uneasy. You, you get, you know, very gendered and sexist uh, feedback often, you know, you, you, if, you're, if you're too loud or if you're too emotional, you know, heaven forbid, right? And, and, and I have had some cases where men have indeed tried to silence me often. They don't do it publicly because mm -hmm. they know they'll get the, um, the, the clash back, so to speak. But I have had some public, um, some private issues with uh, prominent men who I won't name, but who have tried to silence me. Uh, they've learned that they can't. Um, because I'm not someone that that uh, deals well with threats and I don't take well to intimidation tactics um, because I know I'm not doing anything that's wrong. All I'm doing is speaking the truth and I will continue to speak the truth. Um, and, um, you know, the people that, that want to silence me can keep trying, but it's not going to work. So that's my message to them. And, and, and the answer is that it's not easy. 
being a woman, putting yourself out there and, and being critical of, um, you know, a very powerful institution and, and powerful people. And there's a lot of money involved in this world. And, and it, it has been an unnerving experience. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you put your fear aside and you keep going because you know that this is the right thing to do. And, yes. you know, you see the wins and you see the impact that has had for these families, because at the end of the day, all I care about is making this better for the workers and for the residents. So if it makes my life a little uncomfortable in the interim, so be it. Yes, yes. And sometimes you just have to, I've been fighting behind the scenes um, for the black community and for a person with a disability after experiencing some severe inhumane treatment myself. And it's not, it's not easy. It's really, really tough, but someone has to do it, right? I want to ask you about a Bill 37. What is Bill 37? Well, Bill 37 was the um, attempt to update the previous Long-Term Care Homes Act, which was, you know, in effect since 2007. And it was, you know, it was renamed, you know, Fixing Long-Term Care Act and Protecting Seniors, something along those lines. But uh, unfortunately, uh, myself and many other advocates were, were very upset um, by the lack of, of proper reform. And this was the opportunity, right? This was the opportunity. If you're going to make change, do it now and do it right. Um, and, and I presented at those public hearings, which were very rushed. Um, this was a bill that really rushed through with, with the majority of the public, not even knowing that this, this happened. And because it was rushed through so quickly, we were only given notice, a couple days notice to apply for public standing. I did. We had only a couple days notice after that to prepare our talk. We all rushed to do the best job we could and we did present and we, we highlighted all of our concerns and, and um, you know, almost, you know, I don't even think maybe it, maybe a couple of those concerns and none of the really important ones were actually taken to light and amended. And the bill went forward as is, and now it's law. And, um, you know, not only does it make it easier for, for for-profits to secure funding, um, but it does nothing to address the, the working conditions to you know implement the the care st- care standard basic basic care standard now you know they're saying that you know it, it, it we have targets for four years that we might get four hours and it's a minimum um you know it's an average across the homes which is ludicrous because it means that some homes like the municipal homes can continue to provide higher than average care standards and then the for-profit homes can continue providing lower than average and you won't know because you're providing an average estimate which hides the outliers so it's very problematic and it's not going to change anything really um there's some talk of penalties but we've had the ability to penalize bad actors this entire time and we haven't right Instead, this government created Bill 218, which, you know, shielded these homes from COVID-19 liability and and effectively legislated negligence. And that's another really upsetting thing that I don't think the the vast majority of the public are aware of, that these homes were allowed to negligently operate thanks to this government. And this is something that was mind-blowing to all of the advocates, that to have legislation like this, which was so upsetting and just you're effectively allowing what what was going to come in the second wave and the third wave and the fourth wave to happen because you didn't you didn't penalize these bad actors what's your thoughts on where seniors should age at home or long-term care what's your thoughts on that listen I, i ideally everyone wants to be in their homes there's no question about it I don't think people realize, and they should, that long-term care is never a choice. Nobody wants to go to long-term care. Nobody wakes up and says, yeah, this is my dream. 
end up in one of these facilities that we've now heard horror stories and military reports that traumatize the nation. No, it is a crisis situation for families where the care needs are too high and home care right now is frankly a mess and we don't have sufficient funding in that sector to help people to age at home where they want to be. And it is always a situation where people are effectively told they have no other option. If you need 24-7 care, the only place to do it is in one of these facilities. That's, this is you know, what you're effectively told. And unless you expect often women to take on the responsibility and quit their jobs and somehow become independently wealthy and pay their bills without working while caring for these full-time high-risk you know, individuals with comorbidities and very serious health needs, it's, it, it's, it's untenable. Right, so this is never a situation people want, but there's no options. You know, and I've said the things that we need to do going forward is look at the Nordic countries who stopped really building these institutional warehouses, so to speak, and really divested in, in full-time properly paid home care so people could age at home. And when they do have long-term care facilities, they, they, they're smaller, they're like houses that house like eight to 10 people that they all like you know, on one floor where they all have access to the outdoors because as we learned during COVID, it was a premium for residents that had first floor rooms so the, the, the family members could come look at them through the window. Those poor residents on the second, third, fourth, fifth floors were out of luck, right? And were completely isolated. No ability of their families to see them. It was horrifying. So we know the answers, we know the options, but we have seen nothing, nothing from this government to move towards more humane care, properly funded public care so people can stay in their homes longer. And right now, long-term care is still the only option for people that have really serious, you know, 24-7 round-the-clock care needs. Yeah, there's a difference between being <laughs> being at your home. I, yeah. I was in the hospital for four days. And honestly, when I was able to lay in my bed, it was like, oh my God, it was a big, big difference to be able to, to be in your home. But people do need the resources um, that they need to be able to do so. Um, we talk about how... Um, you know, um, residents are feeling. Um, what kind of impact are you hearing um, in regards to um, the impact on staff in these long-term care facilities? Everyone is incredibly burnt out. The workers are so burnt out. We lost so many workers who just, they hit their wall. They couldn't do it. Um, mm -hmm. And you can't blame them, right? They're working in a sector that is not properly uh, regulated. Uh, the vast majority of workers our personal support workers, and this is different, a big difference from 20 years ago when the majority of workers were nurses, but because of things like cost-cutting measures and, and profit-seeking initiatives, they, you know, replaced nurses with PSWs who are unregulated and are easier to exploit, and it's a big problem. And these workers are, are working in untenable, you know, conditions where they're designed to fail. And, and until we, you know, have proper care standards and mandate proper staffing ratios and make sure that we have full-time, permanent, well-paid work, we're never going to keep people in this sector. And this is the ongoing problem that we deal with. Pay these workers well, respect the fact that it is highly skilled, difficult work, provide the training necessary, and they will come and they will stay. But we don't have that right now. And it's a revolving door that this government has done nothing to sufficiently address. Do you know how um, our seniors are doing coping with Omicron versus um, the other variants? Yeah, I mean, I think for them, the most upsetting part is being confined again. So mm -hmm. most of the homes now, and we just learned, I just updated the figures, you know, almost a third of the homes are in outbreak. Um, whenever there's a case, what we find is that the homes just then cut off all the public, um, you know, collective communal dining, social activities, 
the residents just get stuck in their rooms the whole day, all day, every day. If they're lucky enough to get essential caregivers in there, then they have, you know, maybe an, maybe an hour or two of visits a day. But many, you know, residents don't have essential caregivers and they're just on their own in the tiny little rooms with windows that often don't open, some, often no TV. Maybe they're lucky to have a telephone. Can you imagine what that level of confinement? And they have been dealing with this for the better part of two years. And what we're hearing is they're saying, they're telling their loved ones, like, I don't want to live like this. I would rather die. I mean, this is like being in jail. This is how they feel. And it's really upsetting to hear that and, and to see this happening again. You mentioned in a tweet that families are telling you that they don't recognize most of the staff currently. Yeah. What's going on? Well, because they're sick. The staff are getting sick. They're at home. They're isolating or they've left. Um, and we have a, and we've had this revolving door, but because Omicron is, is a game changer in terms of transmissibility, we have more workers ever getting sick. And, and this is what's happening, right? So they've, now they're having to use agency workers and mad dashes to try to get people in there. I've heard they're trying to recruit restaurant workers to come in because they're, you know, the restaurants are closed and closing and, and, and it's a desperate um, attempt to try to get people in there. And the families are like, we don't recognize the workers now because they're either sick um, or they've left and, and largely they're, they're sick. They're at home isolating, you know, and it's, we've never experienced this before. We don't have the mass casualties that we did because of the vaccines, um, but we still are losing seniors. We lost seniors since, uh, six seniors since the last um, update two days ago that I posted. So we've lost almost 20 seniors in the past couple of weeks. Um, but the confinement is, is really painful and the workers are, are now, getting sick on mass and, and we don't, we didn't have a strategy for how to replace that staff, that workforce. And now the homes are struggling to try to find people. I've suggested, you know, to the minister, increase the number of essential caregivers that are triple vaccinated that you allow in these facilities, provide them N95s, they want to get in there and help. So, I mean, that's one way, you know, it's not ideal to ask for these families to provide unpaid labor, but they've been doing it all along realistically. And I'd rather have family in there who, who love these residents and, and know them and know their care needs than strangers, right? So mm -hmm. it's a really difficult situation right now. And I don't think anyone knows how to handle it properly because we've gone to the point where it's too late to mitigate the, the wave, the tsunami that is now, now it's hitting us. What's one last message you can give to the government um, to help change things in long-term care? Yeah, immediately address the staffing conditions, right? Yeah, you have to stop the revolving door, provide the four-hour care standard now, a minimum four-hour care standard for every single home, force these homes to hire more permanent full-time staff and to pay them well. That will deal with the staffing shortage that we constantly have in, the, in terms of safety making sure all long-term care workers have N95s and the visitors. The fact that they don't is mind blowing to me. Um, providing more rapid tests so they can test staff early so we don't have you know, almost 300 homes in outbreak like we have right now because they're only testing twice a week, which is why we are not catching the cases soon enough. And then when it gets in there, it spreads, as you know, with the transmissibility of Omicron. So, I mean, there are key things that they, they could have done, but mm -hmm. didn't and can still do. And we're, we're, yeah. we're praying every minute that and they do that. And it's so important. That's all the time we have for today's episode of Health 180 with Karen Fenn and Rogers TV on podcast. My name is Karen Fenn. Thank you to Dr. Vivian for being here. Thank you to Susie Sher Oshawa. And thank you for joining us. And remember, together we're stronger.